So I'm a student at the University of Sussex and as someone who's studying neuroscience there, I'm fascinated with how the human body works. Our nervous system is incredible, being both utterly complex and finely balanced at the same time. The culture of the scientific community is one of always looking for answers and for reason. I believe when you closely look, there's evidence of design in all of nature, especially when we study our own bodies. For me, this points to there being a creator God. Believing that God created all things totally transforms how I see myself. He chose to create me. Therefore, I have purpose and the dignity of being designed rather than just being the product of random chance. Not only did God create me, but he also wants to know me. And I now get to have a relationship with the one who spoke our world into existence. And that's amazing. The truth that God is the creator of heaven and earth is why I believe. Hi everybody, so good to be talking to you near the start of a new term. Thanks for joining us at uh, Shoreham uh, and Clarence Villas Hove and uh, the Marina in Brighton. We are going into the second part of a series of messages called Creed. We're, we're taking the ancient apostles' creed as, as a sequence of subjects through this term. And uh, we're on the second this week uh, we started last week with, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And uh, this week we're looking at maker of heaven and earth, maker of heaven and earth. Uh, we'll talk more about what the creed is as the time goes on. But let me give you a way to, to illustrate it. Uh, you may have seen the, the Pirates of the Caribbean films. Perhaps you remember that slogan, remember the code. Um, if, if ships get blown off course, if uh, navies sort of get a little bit uh, disintegrated by the chaos of a storm or a battle, if we lose contact with each other, um, the, the, the phrase or the slogan is, remember the code. If you're, if you're left to your own devices, remember the code. Look to the code. There's always the code. And I guess you know, we don't find out in those films what the code precisely is, or at least I don't remember. I don't remember them watching all those films, but I remember the idea, nevertheless, of some kind of uh, rem remembered uh, set of ideas, teachings, uh, beliefs that are coded in some kind of memorable, recitable uh, set of words that each sailor or each pirate kind of has burned into their memory so that whatever happens, we, we remember the code, okay? We, we, can, we can at least hold on to the code. And practically, that must have been actually really important in a lot of naval situations. I guess it still would be today, but particularly before radio communications and, and radar and everything where, where ships might get blown away from their, their, uh, their group of, of, of Ships, navy, whatever. I, what's, what's the word for a multiple? Anyhow, the fleet. Um, uh, but but they still kind of they they know what to do because they got the code. And I suppose the the Christian Church kind of began a little bit like that. Actually, we're talking about thousands upon thousands of quite probably spread out communities all around the Mediterranean in 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 the the first few years of the church, 20 centuries ago, where really there was a lot of persecution of Christians, a lot of Christian leaders were being taken to prison, 
some would have been killed. A lot of churches would have lived not only under threat and uh, harassment from the state, but would have been perhaps cut off from their own families and previous areas of society where they felt comfortable. It was probably a context for a lot of just, just potential disintegration. And, and it was necessary from the start that Christians, people who were coming to trust Jesus and putting their confidence in Jesus and joining this new group called the Christians, for them to know what it is that they were holding on to. And so the creed was formulated as a way of summarizing in a kind of espresso format. You know, this is, if you've got to get it right down to the, the real perfect formula, here's what we believe. Here it is set out in a clear, memorable way. It's simple, it's, it's memorable, it's recitable, and people probably would have been asked to recite it at the point when they were being baptized, for example, as a point of initiation, like a pledge of allegiance, you know, say this, this I have come to believe. And, and it's, it's therefore something a child could potentially uh, memorize. And yet, when you're going through it, and as we'll go through it over this term, you'll discover it's, it's a little bit like someone said about the Bible itself. It's shallow enough to, for a child to play with or play in. It's deep enough for an elephant to drown in. There's, there's, there's ease with the creed. There's catchiness. There's punchiness. There's simplicity. There's minimalism. There's also profundity. <laughs> uh, there's, there's wonder. Uh, there's majesty. Uh, there's the opportunities to pursue and explore labyrinthine corridors of truth. Uh, ideas that would keep you fascinated and maybe even curious or maybe even bewildered uh, for months on end because it is such a glorious thing that the creed seeks to communicate. And so we're going to be doing both the simple and the more uh, advanced during this term. We're going to have times where we stand together and simply recite this creed and remember it so that we are able to, perhaps by Christmas time, have it burned into our memory, but we're also going to examine it and look into the truths that it seeks to press to us. And we need that. We need it because although we don't live in the same times as the first churches with their potential for disintegration, uh, we still live in times where it's so important to Christians to know what they believe to know what it is that Christianity actually teaches. Otherwise, our Christianity can simply be boiled down to a set of preferences and experiences. To know what it is that we are signing up to, joining up to, pledging our allegiance to, if you like, is important. And so that we're enabled to represent Jesus better. Because frankly, your friends who don't know Jesus Christ, and you amongst us today, here today, who, who you, you, you may say, I don't know Jesus, and I hope that there are many here today who aren't Christians and who are examining these things for yourself. If you want to know what Christianity is, there are precious few opportunities in the mainstream culture. Because there's hardly anything in the, the mainstream media, there's hardly anything on TV, there's hardly any way to know just by living an ordinary life in, in Brighton or anywhere else in the UK to really come to grips or come to contact with genuine Bible Christianity. I don't know what we, how people could possibly know what Christianity is without actually finding a real Christian or going to a real church and investigating for themselves. 
There's just nothing out there to show true Christianity. If it weren't for Ned Flanders, I don't know what we'd do. I'm just so grateful that we have the faithful Neddy Flanders to show the world exactly what Christianity is, exactly uh, what Jesus intended. And I'm just so pleased for at least one outspoken voice. But nevertheless, most people, okay, we don't have the voice we need. The creed is a way, I think, for Christians to just be clear on their their convictions and perhaps able because of that to communicate them more fully. So let me read you. I'm going to do this today by reading to you some verses from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews in the New Testament, very very late in the Bible, uh, written by a first century uh, Christian. We don't precisely know who it was, but it was one of the, the very first generation. Um, and it's 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 a it's a magnificent book. But I'm going to read you just three verses from chapter 11 to set the scene on the theme today. Uh, we looked last week at how God is the Father, I believe in God the Father Almighty. I want to look this week at, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So let's read chapter 11, verses 1 to 3 of Hebrews. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So I was saying earlier that Christianity can be seen as just a lifestyle choice. Christianity is, you know, is up there with Pilates or acupuncture or, you know, whatever. It's just alternative ways of doing life, alternative ways of enjoying your free time. Christianity is up there with, with, with jogging, with cycling, with... with needlework, whatever it is, they're just, it's a lifestyle choice. I, I, I do church as well in my spare time. And if we go down that route, we can end up being kind of consumers of Christianity, choosing it um, over the other brands that happen to be presented to us on the supermarket shelves as I go down the aisle of life. I, I choose this, I choose that. And I'm in the position of final authority as I make my decision about whether Christianity suits me, whether the idea of God suits me. Do I want a God or do I not want a God? Well, you can have God option or no God option. It's up to you. You know, you just, you, you, you make the consumer call. The, the, the reality is that Christianity does not come to us in those terms. Christianity is, well, let's put it like this. I can imagine a character in a play having to decide whether or not he or she will believe something or choose something. But I, I, I can't imagine it that they would have to, to, to choose whether or not they believe that there is a writer of the play. If you do that, you've got a funny play. You've got a, you've got a, you've got a, a, a playwright who's having fun. I mean, Hamlet in Shakespeare has to choose whether or not to believe in the ghost of his father. He's got to decide, do I believe this is really my father? And are my friends telling me the truth when they report this to me? He doesn't have to choose whether to believe in William Shakespeare. That's not how the play works. The, the, the character in the play is, 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 is they're not kind of, they're, they're choosing over things within the play. When we make decisions about our lifestyle, about our options, we're deciding about things that exist within our lives and kind of in the, in the context of our story. Christianity claims to be the whole play, the whole story. That's the point. The creed, the Apostles' Creed that we're examining this term, is a way of seeing not a part of your life. It's not a way of looking at one of the options. It's a way of seeing 
the whole of life. It's a way of seeing all of reality. It is a view of the entire world, in fact. That's how it comes to us. And uh, if we have to make our minds up, it's, it's making our minds up on whether or not it is the ultimate way of seeing all reality. Because without it, there's no play. Without the playwriter, there's, there's no play at all. This, this, this whole of our existence makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, in spite of that fact, we still choose other ways of seeing the world. In spite of the, the, the claim I'm making that, that Christianity presents itself as the most reasonable way of seeing the world, we seem to lunge instead for alternative options, other ways of understanding this world and how this world came about. Uh, instead of choosing the option that the, the creed says that, that God the Father is creator of heaven and earth, yet he did it, he's the one, the Bible claims, Christianity claims, the creed claims, who caused all things to exist. Without him, nothing that was created was created. Nothing. And he did it without using raw materials. He didn't get a flat pack from Ikea. He simply spoke. And things that did not exist obeyed him by existing. Let there be light. Light which did not previous exist, previously exist came into existence out of sheer obedience, he has that level of authority. He can say to something, exist. And it does. His voice, his word, carries that authority. That's, that's the teaching of Scripture. It came because God spoke it into existence from nothing. Now, nearly everybody these days accepts that the world and, and the universe and the cosmos must have begun at a certain point. There's something, there's a point in time that we all kind of go back to. But not everybody accepts the claim that there was a God behind it. In fact, in, in, in our context, in cities like Brighton and places like Hove and Shoreham and, and other places like, like this, we tend to lunge instead for one of two other options. One might be called the material option, the, the matter option or the materialist option. The other might be the, the oneism option, uh, the sometimes called pantheism, monism. You could call it mindism. Let's start with the materialist option. This is the option where matter is all that has ever existed. Just matter. It's stuff. Stuff that uh, you can examine um, by, by your five senses. Stuff that you can examine through a microscope. Stuff, stuff you can examine through a telescope. Stuff that we call matter is all that there is. There is no God and there is no spirit spiritual reality, these things are delusions. These things aren't real. And, and although not everyone would make that claim, not everyone in Brighton over believe that, but many would, and many, even if they don't believe that, would still be prepared to live their life within that worldview. They live their life accepting the idea that matter is all that there really is. Matter is all that really matters, because matter is all that there is, really. I mean, maybe there's something spiritual, but we, we, we doubt it, and, and, and who cares if there is, and we just, you know, it's not very practical to live your life with that kind of delusion, so let's just put that in the background. Now, if you go down the materialist worldview, if you, if you accept that as your creed, and say, I believe there is no creator, I believe in no creator, almighty, father, whatever, nothing. You, you have to nevertheless face some ex extremely 
tricky realities to the point, I think, where you've got to, it's pretty exhausting. First of all, the, the fact of the matter is that the world shows signs of design that seem inescapable. I mean, not just that the world seems, oh yeah, this, this seems almost like it's a bit designed. No, 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 not, not just generally and vaguely. I mean, to a level of infinitesimal detail. Let me give you an example, a quotation from uh, uh, Francis Collins, um, who's, a, who's the, the leader of the Human Genome Project, a world-renowned scientist. He puts it like this, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, no stars, no planets or people. Not, not even the possibility. If even like the things like the, the gravitational constant, the cosmological constant, strong and weak nuclear constants, uh, the parameter concerning anti-gravity, these are things that, that obviously the physicists and the scientists in the room would have far more understanding of than, than the rest of us. But if these things were off by, as he's saying, just a millionth of a million, just, just the tiniest, hardly understandable level of infinitesimal detail, if they were wrong, we wouldn't even be here. We, the level of sophistication, the level of intricate of perfection in detail of design seems to give not just a clue, but almost demands. In fact, surely it does demand the concept of a designer. And yet we seem happier, many of us going along in our lives with the notion that eh, there's no spiritual designer, there's no creator. And so we go through life instead with the notion that, that, that there's no creator at all. But here's the other thing, that also means that you have to go into life with the acceptance that there's no meaning at all, either. There's no purpose. There's no point. If there's no God, there's no purpose, then actually all there is is mindless matter, no plan, that means all there is is sheer accident, pure accident. That's all that we are, utter accident. And that means that we, as actual souls, as persons, don't even really exist. Not really, as souls, as, as minds that have any significance whatsoever. <laughs> We're just sheer accidents of matter. We don't matter at all. Frankly, we don't even exist as people in the, in the old-fashioned sense. We're just stuff, and we're stuff that's constantly replacing itself. If you think about it, we, a few years ago, a friend of mine made this point to me, I thought it was true, that, that when somebody gets convicted of a crime that they committed years back, is that person in the dock actually responsible? If you go for a materialist universe, They've got the wrong person because all the cells have been replaced. The matter that's there in the dock is not the same matter that did the crime years, decades before. Because the person that we, we sort of seem to be putting up for the crime isn't the same. It's, 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 if we're just matter, then, then we as persons 
don't exist really, not in any meaningful sense. And I don't know about you, I, I, I simply don't think we get to do life that way. I think the materialist has to kind of have two different brains or two different ways of seeing the world at the same time. Because really deep down we know that that can't be true. We know that can't be what life is like. I find this a fascinating quotation from a, a famous atheist, Bertrand Russell, from a generation or two back. He said this, it's odd, isn't it? I care passionately for this world and many things and people in it. And yet, what is it all for? There must be something more important, one feels, though I don't believe there is. There must be something more important, one feels it. And he's, he's being honest. He's being helpfully honest. I feel like life is important. I feel like there's got to be a reason and a purpose. I feel that, that this world is, is something we should be passionate about. And yet I don't believe that we should. He's stating his creed. He's saying, I don't believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Therefore, I don't believe in anything ultimately. And yet I feel, I feel as though life was very important. I just don't believe it anymore. This is what you do if you get rid of the God of the creed. You have to accept that we live in a meaningless universe. We live in a universe where they're not... Ten Commandments, there's no commandments except possibly one, eat or be eaten. That's it. That's the order of the day. It's survival. It's, it's bettering others. It's conquest. It's, that's it. That's what we're left with. Now, I don't know if that's the, the kind of water you've swum in all your life or if, if it's been more the other option. I said there were two. I talked about the kind of pantheistic one-ism option where it's all the same. There's no creator as such because there's no creation. We, it's all one. We are all God. All, God is everything and everything is God. And this is more or less the kind of framework for most uh, Eastern religions. And, and many people, uh, not just in the East, but all over and, and, and in all kinds of contexts, and certainly many of our friends in Brighton, many of us here in this room, I'm sure, have been at least influenced by this way of seeing the world where everything that is... Uh, just is, and it exists as, as a kind of mixture. We're not, not even a, a mixture. It's just, it's just the spiritual reality that we're, we're all a part of. And therefore, what is, is as it should be. Which, again, might be attractive on some levels. It might make us think, well, it makes me very special. It means that I'm God. I'm, I'm, I'm God. Because I exist as part of what is God. Everything is God, and I'm, I'm part of that. <sighs> Wow, big for me, that's good, surely. But, but it leaves, I think, some massive questions. In fact, it leaves one enormous, great big gap. What about suffering? What about the, the evil in the world? What about the evil we go through? What about the struggles in our lives? What about pain? If, if everything is as it should be, because everything is, then all we can do about suffering is say, we've got to, treat it as an illusion. We've got to sort of kind of escape it by seeing it as not even truly real. It's not actually even real. And some have tried to live that way and, and come to the point where they, they've doubted it on a profound level. A famous Japanese poet, Isa, who, who um, sort of put this across in a very simple haiku. 
where he sort of stated the the the, the basic beliefs, the basic premises of, of, of his worldview's response to suffering. The world is due. The world is due. It's just like kind of that. It's just suffering is just passing. It's not real. It's due on on a blade of grass. It will. It's it's not substantial. It's not real. It will go. It will evaporate. And yet, and yet, that's how his poem finishes, because he's unable to face with consistent integrity the, the claim of his view of the world. He can't follow through on it because the loss of a daughter, in his case, and a mother, the, the grief and sorrow he was going through forced him to face the reality of suffering. That it's not an illusion. This world isn't right. There, 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 there may be a, 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 some kind of creator after all who, who we can go back to and cry out to and ask why, look for answers because this world isn't as it should be and maybe the creator knows it isn't as it should be. Maybe we've even spoiled it. Maybe the suffering is something that we, the human race, have brought in to existence. So I'm presenting these two views the materialist view, and let's call it the pantheist view, and saying they have major problems. And the Christian claim is that it's better to understand the world, well, the way the Bible presents, the way the creed presents. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You get the Psalms in the Bible, the great songs of the Old Testament, the songs that Jesus would have grown up singing and memorizing, no doubt, which have verses like this in Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, and we are his. And then it says, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. It's, it's a way of saying, God made all this. He's to be praised. He's to be thanked. But is that what we do? Generally, no. Generally, we don't give thanks. Instinctively, we recoil. We, we resist. We choose other views of the world. We seem to lunge for any alternative than the idea that there's a creator God to whom we have to answer. I wonder why that is. Why might it be that we struggle so much? Perhaps you're different. Perhaps you're the sort of person who loves the idea of there being a God. You love the idea of, of there being a creator and you've, you've had moments in your life where you've kind of come to see him in his creation. It's caused you joy. Just moments, just pangs where you've perhaps come to the top of a mountain or you've, you've, you've seen a, a vista of the universe through some kind of photographic image or something and it's just caused you to be caught up with a sense of wonder and an acknowledgement of a glorious creator behind it. And that can happen to us. That can be in there. But we tend to be nevertheless quick to squash it down when we see certain challenges coming with it. Because let's put it, let's, let's just put it like this. Let me give you four reasons, quickly, four reasons why the notion of a creator, an almighty creator, might cause us some discomfort. First of all, if he created us, he owns us. We don't own ourselves. I think the, the modern Western world is built on the assumption that individuals own themselves. And certainly cities like Brighton, 
Shoreham, Harrow, places like the, the cities that we're serving, trying to start churches in. This assumption thrives. I own myself. God, who is a creator, ultimately must own us. Of course he does. Of course he does. He's not to be questioned by us. He, he utterly owns us. He possesses us. Even the psalm that I just read to you from, or even if you go back to other places in the psalms, Psalm 89, verse 11, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The creator is surely the possessor, the owner. I'm the owner of the things that I I make. I create something. Maybe if I was good at it, if I made stuff in my house, I would have the privilege of ownership on, on, on the basis of making. If I make stuff in the kitchen, you know, I get to, I get to, and that's just, that's when I've made it with my own raw materials that I bought from the shop. God, if he makes stuff without even the, the, the flour and the eggs and the butter, he, he makes stuff without even the, the, the saw, the hammer, the nails, the chisels, whatever. He, he just makes it out of nothing. I think he gets to own it. I think he has authority over you and me. I think he has surely the final authority. And that means that secondly, he doesn't just own us, he judges us. He puts us in the dock. We don't put him in the dock. We are not ever his judge. The Bible puts it often in these terms, that he is the potter, we are the clay. We don't get to turn to him and say, what, what do you think you're doing? Why, why are you making me like this? That's obvious, it's kind of comedy in the Bible, you know, the, 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 the pot turning to the potter. Why are you making me? We, that's ridiculous, obviously. It's ludicrous because the, the maker is the judge. We don't get to judge him. And yet it seems that most of our religious or philosophical conversations that, that bring the issue of God or the existence of God into the radar of the conversation thrive 90% of the time on the, the idea of you know, telling God what he should have done, and putting the boundaries around God, putting God under our scrutiny, checking out whether God's a fair God or not. Can you see how you, you can't do that? If God is the maker of you from nothing, well, we don't really get to be his judge. It's quite the other way around. If he was just a, a demigod, if he was just like Thor or something, just something, you know, a, a kind of part of creation but happened to be a god, then maybe we could blame him. Maybe we could say, oh, you're just a bully. But no, he's the one that's the playwright. He's, in, he's the creator of it all. The third thing, He's the leveller. He owns us, judges us, he levels us. We're all created by him, all people. All people are, in that sense, equal before him, the rich and the poor alike. It says in Psalm 22, uh, sorry, Proverbs 22, verse 2, the rich and the poor alike are created by him. So what was he saying? The Bible saying we, we don't get to flaunt our superiority because before God, we none of us have any superiority. Before God, we are all the same. That which we have, we have as a gift. It's all his generosity in the first place. And so how can we imagine that because of our background, because of our tribe, because of our level of education, because of our wealth, because of our sophistication, because of our skills, because of some shallow, superficial, trivial demarcation, we, we make ourselves out to be greater than another creation? No, 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 no. That doesn't work. If, if we're all created, we're all leveled by him. And it brings to a point of silliness all our kind of distinctions of ourselves. I remember being at school in the playground. We would have all done this, you know, when, when especially, you know, I guess 
boys will do this. I'm sure girls have their way of doing it as well. We would, we would, we would sort of in, in the imaginary points where we were all being Star Wars characters. Let's play Star Wars. And it was quite important in that group who got to be which character. And you know, if I got to be Han Solo or Luke Skywalker, that said something about who I was in the group. If, if I had to be Chewbacca or C-3PO, then that said something about who I was in the group. There's certainly a hierarchy on the playground. But when, when we got into trouble and the headmistress had us all in her office, as far as she was concerned, we were all at the same level. She didn't say, now, which one of you is, uh, is Han Solo? Which one of you, is, I need to speak to the most important one of the group. Which one of you is Han Solo? She had no interest. She's not a respecter of persons. She had no interest in our imaginary constructs on what makes us great or what makes us small. God one day will judge us based on what he considers, what he sees in our lives, not on what we think, as in how many likes we've got, how many followers we've got, how many clicks we get what kind of popularity we've accrued, how many friends we have. These things mean nothing before a creator, nothing at all. The third thing was leveling. The fourth thing that he does is he destabilizes us. In other words, he insists that he is God and we are not. We've spent human history insisting that we're God and he is not. We've spent our lives doing that. We've spent our lives rebuilding Rebuilding the world around our own design. It's like we've seen his designs. We've been in the architect's office. We've looked at the big white ball. We've looked at the, 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 the design. And we've said, yeah, I think I can improve on that. And we've got on the building site and started constructing our own, our own uh, monuments. Our own building on his building site. With his plans in the office behind a locked door. We don't want to know. We come on the building site and start our own constructions. And God says, no, you can't do that. And he has to deconstruct all of our constructions. He says, no, I will, I will destabilize. I will put you at the periphery of your life because it isn't your life. It's mine, says God. You belong to me. And you have to start again. You have to humble yourself to start all over. Now, all of this challenges us and perhaps at least partly helps to explain why we are so quick to lunge for other views of the world. Maybe when we hear about a God who owns, judges, levels and destabilizes us, we think, no, I don't really want that God. I'd rather a universe where there isn't one. Or I'd rather a universe in which I get to be God. And these different views of the world are deeply appealing because the idea of this mighty creator becomes unattractive to selfish humans. But there's more to be seen before we finish today in these first lines of the creed and in the, the verse from Hebrews chapter 11 I read to you. There's more to be seen. So let's finish before we close by just looking a little more carefully and patiently at what it's saying here because it will make all the difference for you and me in terms of how appealing and attractive this actually ends up being. See, the, the, the kind of faith that we're talking about when we recite the creed, I believe, 
in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. The faith that the Bible, in fact, invites us to is a heartfelt, joyful conviction. It's not a speculation, and neither is it a, a, a kind of a, an annoying, demanding truth or fact that we don't like and we resentfully have to accept reluctantly, even though we wish it were not true. I think we tend to see faith like that very often. It's, it's kind of, well, there might be, I suppose the world's here for a reason. Okay, you win. There must be a creator of some kind. There must be some unmoved mover, uncaused cause. It, it all started somewhere, so fair enough, there's going to be something. I mean, even so-called atheists will kind of accept that, but that's not faith. That's not faith in the sense that he's, he's describing where he talks about the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That first verse of Hebrews 11. Assurance, conviction, confidence. I've, I've, I've become persuaded of something. I haven't seen it. None of us were there when God made the world, when he spoke and said, let there be light. None of us were sitting in the front row or even the back row. It was impossible. <laughs> it didn't exist. We believe it because we've been convinced. We've been persuaded. It's on the basis of testimony. Somebody has come to us to speak this to us, and we've believed it in our hearts. Conviction is different than speculation, but it's also, like I said, different from resentment. See, it's possible to believe in God, almighty creator, but rather hate him. It's possible to actually accept the claims of the creed, but, but resent them. Many do that. Many go through their lives doing that. The Bible says that the devil does that. In other words, there's, a, there's an actual evil personality. There's a force behind evil, which is personal, and, and, and a whole army who, who believe, believe in the sense that, that they, they know the claims of the Bible are true, but hate them, hate them. And it's possible for us to do that, to just come to a point of saying, okay, there is a God, I accept that. I don't want him. I, I suppose, though, I have to go along with him. I have to accept him because he is powerful, because he is almighty, because he is creator. But there are a couple of clues to help us see this differently. First is in the creed itself. Remember the sequence of the words. I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. He's a father first. He's a father before he's anything else. He's not mainly a creator. Before creation came along, before creation happened, before he brought it into being, he was a father. And a perfectly happy, delighted father because his son, his eternal son, the wisdom, the word of God, the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, pre-existent, before he was born at Christmas time, 2,000 years ago, happily existed with him in eternity. There was never a beginning to their warmth of relationship. A father and a son dwelling together in mutual love, in the spirit, the Holy Spirit, three in one God. Phenomenal, glorious Unique God, the kind of God who is just one lonely personality on an eternal throne with no one else around 
but with the power to make lots of things and get lots of stuff done and create lots of people who will do his bidding, that's the kind of God that we would make up. That's the kind of God we would imagine. But the kind of God the Bible teaches, don't think we would make up. The kind of God the Bible teaches us about is, is so rare. It's, it's, such a, it's such a beautiful mystery and truly beautiful. Because we're talking about a father and a son existing in perfect satisfaction and joy, not needing to create the world out of loneliness, being perfectly fulfilled already in a deeply satisfying union and relationship. That's the God of the Bible. This is very different from the faith that comes out of resentment and reluctance. And, and he's a father with a son who is actually sometimes called the Word. We've been saying God created with a word. He, I mean that in a full sense. Jesus is involved. His name is the word. One of the beautiful places in the, in the New Testament, one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible puts it like this. This is one of Jesus' friends, the Apostle John. At the end of his life, he writes this. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, there was a person with the Father, I'll read it to you, I won't interrupt him. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And later on, he says this. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the son the only son from the father full of grace and truth see i talked earlier about this idea of a play and an actor in the play choosing whether or not another character is real but not knowing anything about the playwright how would they how would an actor in a play how would a character in a play Character in Hamlet, knowing William Shakespeare, doesn't work. But supposing William Shakespeare wrote himself into the play, supposing the playwright actually became one of the characters, joined in the drama, went through it with them. This is Christianity. The Word, who is in the beginning with God and is God, and through whom the world was made, the word, the voice of God, this word became flesh, walked amongst us. We have seen him, we have seen his glory, full of grace and truth. Jesus coming amongst us changes everything. That The writer of the play has walked on the stage and takes his part in it with us. The former of all creation has walked in to the garden, if you like, walked into the creation to share it with us. And not only to share it with us, but to show us the Father, to reveal to us who he really is, to help us to understand what's really going on. And to show us glory. And to be sure, he did that in remarkable ways. Jesus was able to speak just like his Father, <laughs> In creation, let there be light. And there's light. Jesus spoke to a storm once. 
on a boat in a lake. When he spoke, be still. There was utter stillness. That's the authority of his voice. He is the word of God. He spoke to a corpse in a tomb, come forth. Life was created. Life existed because of the voice of this man. This man who is God. Jesus. But here's the thing. You might say, well, what, what did he do to show his might? How did he show his power, his glory, his scary authority? How did he show his majesty? Well, the way he showed his glory most purely and most finally, if you like, was actually in the most surprising way. He didn't even speak at that point. He had spoken. He caused a whole bodyguard, a whole group of soldiers to fall on their backs when he spoke a word to them at one point. But when they took him to his trial and his crucifixion, he spoke nothing. He was silent. He was silent. He actually showed the glory, the power of the Almighty through his self-giving love. Through the giving of himself, he showed us what the Almighty is like. He showed us what is mighty. He showed us what almighty looks like. He showed us that when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, we're talking about this extraordinary Father. We're talking about this God who is mysterious and magnificent and deeply wonderful and who invites us into his fellowship, his friendship, his family, if you like, to be joined together with him. It's not easy. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer, to go and die on a cross because our rebellion against our creator has been so wicked. Jesus did it for us because God is like that. He is terrifying in his glory and majesty and beautiful in his glory and majesty, loving and tender in his glory and majesty, glorious and majestic in his love and tenderness. We're getting to know a God through the creed who actually wins the kind of faith from us that isn't mixed with resentment. We don't have to come like devils and demons saying, I know it's true, I just wish it wasn't. Or like scientists who say, I, I, I see the evidence of creation, but I will not accept it. I see design, but I don't want it. Say, no, I'm so glad that he's the designer. I'm so glad that he's the father. I'm so glad that he is the Lord God because he's allowed. He, I'm so pleased that he's my owner. He paid for me on the cross. He gets to own me. He's my judge. He took my judgment on the cross. I'm glad that he's my judge. He's my leveler. He humbles me down to be like a little child, to accept to deconstruct my life. I'll go back to the architect's office. I'll take his plans and I'll go with what he wants for my life. He can deconstruct my life completely because I trust him because he's so good. He can, he can deconstruct my life. He can level me. He can judge me. He can own me if he's this God. The God of the Bible is different than any God we might have imagined or expected. He, he is the creator 
who is full of grace, full of mercy, full of truth. We can be confident in him, the faithful one. What we're going to do as we finish today is come to the table, take bread and wine, remembering our Lord Jesus and saying in our heart, I trust with all my heart, I trust in this God as the centre of everything, not me. I don't want to be on the throne anymore. I don't want to be the centre of the universe. What a feeble centre that would be. I deconstruct my life in, or I allow you to in favour of your reconstructing of my life around the true, mighty Father and Creator. Father, we thank you for this creed. We hold it to be true. We stand by it. We thank you for the, the glory that it communicates as we've understood it through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ.